We are continuing our study of the book of Matthew, and we are going to finish chapter 6 today. The title of the sermon is Anxiety Sobriety. I'm sure there's no one in here that's going to need this message. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture that we're going through today. One that I continue to go back to over and over and over again in life and recommend people to read over and over and over again. But where, where do you guys keep your valuables? You know, in the modern world, we've developed many different ways to protect our, our money and our valuables, haven't we? We've built the banking system to the giant that it now is. We've got checkings accounts, savings accounts, money market accounts, CDs, bonds, IRAs, 401ks, and plenty more that we could list off. We ride that roller coaster that is the stock market, and even when we have stuff, money, valuables that we don't want to entrust to any of those pathways, that we don't want to actually put any at risk, right, invest in anything, then we have safety deposit boxes, and we've got safes in our homes, and we hide things under the floorboards, and we bury things in the backyard, and even if something did happen to our stuff, we've got Homeowner's insurance, renter's insurance, auto insurance, and the insurance of the FDIC. We go to great lengths to protect our stuff. And what's the thinking behind that? Well, generally, humans feel pretty anxious about losing their stuff. A study from Thriving Wallet found that 90% of Americans feel stress about their finances. A different study found that 77% reported feeling anxious about their financial situation. Why are we so anxious about money? You see, we get this idea in our heads that if we don't have our stuff, then what do we have? Right? Like, what what do I have if I don't have that that big stick-built house to live in and that car to drive and and the computer to play on and and my phone in my pocket and the TV to watch? Like, what, what kind of life could we have without our stuff? Surely not one worth living. How could we go on without all these things that... Well, I guess no human had until recent history... How could we go on? In our society, though, we act like the moment that we go bankrupt, we spontaneously, we just combust, we just die. Our life is over. There's nothing else. So we toil and scheme away, trying trying to figure out how to get that fast money, how to have that side hustle that brings in six figures, how to build unions and and leverage, get all the leverage we can so we can squeeze out as much as we possibly can and how to achieve the good life. And yet here we are with more creature comforts for people in poverty than our ancestors ever imagined anybody having. And we're not content. We're not happy. We're not comfortable. We lay in our memory foam mattresses and sit on our poofy couches and sit at our desk chairs that have a million different adjustments and drive around in our cars that have shocks and power steering and adjustable seats and complete and utter discomfort. Why are we not comfortable? Well, because we don't make enough money to be comfortable, duh. 
A survey by Bankrate found Americans saying that they needed to make $233,000 a year to feel comfortable about their finances. I don't even know what to say to that. Uh, that, that particular one might be an outlier. There was another by, uh, from CNBC that found that 14% said they would be comfortable with less than 50000 a year, 31% with fifty to 100000 26% with 100000 to 150000 and the last 29% at a variety of levels above that. And so I, I took that whole survey, all the different levels that people said they needed to feel comfortable, and then I, I averaged it all up, right? To feel, what, what's the average of what someone is saying they need to feel comfortable? And the average was $138,000. And regardless of what someone thinks they need to feel comfortable the vast majority, all that they know, what they have in their heads, they might be like, oh, I don't know what I really need to feel comfortable, but I know that it's more. It's, it definitely needs to be more. Just, I don't know how much more, but it's got to be more. Michael Green said, money the ancients came to see is like seawater. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you get. If it could be more, then we would just feel okay. Oh, but wait a second, what happens when we get more? Oh, that's right. We change our lifestyle so that our definition of comfort changes with it. That's why in the bank rate survey, 72% of people said that if they received a raise, they would spend more money. That's what they would do. That's also why, according to Lending Club, and these numbers come from December of last year, 64.4% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And that included 78% of people making less than 50,000 a year, 66% of people making 50 to 100, and 51% of people making more than 100,000. So even people making six figures every year, more than half of them are living paycheck to paycheck. But we'd be comfortable. And anxiety would just float away if we just had more. Right? Wrong. Completely wrong. Anxiety has its roots elsewhere. Jesus teaches us it's not a money problem. And this morning, we're going to learn about how to store up treasures in heaven and how to put our trust in God, not just for these things, but for all things, which is how we can have anxiety sobriety. Before we jump in, let's pray. God, may this be what you want it and need it to be in our lives. There's nobody here that has not worried. So we need to listen. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start with verses 19 through 21 of Matthew chapter 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now with some preachers, all they want to do is talk about money because they're greedy wolves praying after the sheep, right? And so they just, all they want to do is talk about money and they want to always tell you if you have money problems, it's a faith problem. All you need to do is give more and that's going to solve your problems. But with other preachers, they don't ever want to talk about money because they're afraid that they're going to upset somebody. And neither of those approaches is correct. Jesus talked a lot about money, a lot, but it was never to line his own pockets. And it was never to teach his disciples to line their own pockets either. As I said, we work hard to protect our stuff, but Jesus begins by this section by pointing out how vain it all is. Cash can disintegrate, get eaten by rodents. Cars eventually are going to turn into piles of rust. And even if you can prevent your goods from decay, it can be stolen at any moment. And even if you prevent it from being stolen and you prevent it from decay and you keep it with you forever, you cannot take it with you when you die. Greed is a bad investment. Our society loves investing. We love talking about investing. And investing can be a good thing, but the question we have to ask is, what's the end goal of that investing? We invest in a lot of things, but ultimately, the world, when you look at what people, they're investing in things, but they're investing for themselves. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how you do it. Investing is good, but you need to invest for others. We know what happens in this world. We make more money, we spend more money. And we spend it on ourselves. That's why we are a paycheck-to-paycheck society. We see things the wrong way. When we get a raise, our mind shouldn't automatically be thinking like, oh, sweet, I got a raise. Now I can get that thing that I wanted, and I can do these things that I've always wanted to do. And No, we should be thinking, sweet, I can be more generous. I can up my giving. We can raise, honey, I got a raise. We can raise our giving another percentage. But we don't. We don't see giving as a good investment, but God does. God absolutely does. We've looked at other ways to build up treasures in heaven already. We've, Jesus has been teaching about them. That, that comes through, it's not just through giving, it's through loving our enemies, right? Praying for those who persecute us, going the extra mile, being peacemakers, praying, fasting, just generally living for the Lord. There's many ways that we build up treasures in heaven, but we cannot ignore that giving is a big one. An important way to build up treasure in heaven. And we don't give with the expectation that God's then, oh, oh I'm, I'm giving. Why, why are you giving? Well, because God's, he, he's going to turn it around and he's going to give it back and, and, and it's going to be more than it was before. He might do that. I'm not saying that he doesn't, that he can't. He absolutely can. But we don't give. That's not why we do it. I've, and I've preached on this before. I be, absolutely believe that God wants us to be rivers, not dams. Right? God loves to pour into people who are rivers, who let those resources that he pours into them flow for his kingdom. And I don't think he has any interest in pouring into people who like to shore it up and hold it for themselves and build dams. In fact, I think he likes to put little drains at the bottom of those dams. And that's why some people are always struggling with money the way that they are. And they're like, well, we can't give. We're barely making it. When in reality, they might be barely making it because they don't give. 
Because God is calling them, convicting them. He's saying, trust me, believe in me, invest in eternal things. And they're like, no, I just can't do it. They don't believe in the Bible's investment strategy. But with that being said, I also need to say that we are absolutely not guaranteed anything specific in this life for what we give. We are guaranteed rewards, but we're not guaranteed anything specific now. And we shouldn't need to be. Luke, oh, giving is a good investment. I didn't know I didn't put that up there. Luke 14, 13 and 14 says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you want the good life? Right there, you are told how to get the good life. And it is not in pampering ourselves, it is in giving. It is in being generous. It is in sacrifice. Douglas O'Donnell said, we've been given the golden rule, not the golden goose. Our treasure follows our heart. It's not hard to see what people care about when you get to take a look at their bank statements. And if we can't see that greed is a bad investment and that the good life is the giving life, then that means that we have bad eyes, which is exactly what Jesus goes on to say. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Now, we could misunderstand these verses if we pluck them out of their context because everything before and after, it's about money, right? And, and so we, we keep that as we interpret this because it's not an easy thing to interpret. A lot of questions come up here like, is the eye letting light in or is it giving light? Because a lamp gives light. And is, is our, like our bodies, what is he saying? Like our bodies aren't actually full of light. Our eyes aren't actually letting light into our veins. That's not what's happening So John Piper helpfully pointed out the connection between this and the parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you guys remember that parable, there was the master who was paying people to work in his vineyard and he had some guys show up the beginning of the day and they agreed, all right, you work all day and I'm going to pay you this price. They agreed on it. Other guys showed up in the middle of the day. Other guys showed up at the tail end and they barely worked a little bit that day. And then the end of the day, the master's paying everybody and he gives them all the same wage. And those guys that had worked all day, they're like, what is going on? This isn't right. And he's like, wait, what are you saying? It's not right. You agreed to this. I'm not doing you any wrong. I'm being generous to them. And the master said in Matthew 20, verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? You see, they had bad eyes. Some of these guys, they couldn't see the beauty of generosity. 
And if you can't see that giving and generosity is a good investment, you have bad eyes and you live in darkness. And what happens is that you are money's slave, which is what Jesus then goes on to warn us about. No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can't. Now, we don't need to think about this as like working two different jobs. You can serve two different bosses. This, is, this language is more taking us to slavery. It's like, hey, you, you are only owned by one master. When it comes to money, it serves you or you serve it. Douglas O'Donnell said, that is, do you see God as master and money as slave? You get in order to give. You beat money into submission. You sit down and say to it, thank you for coming today, money. Listen, I just wanted to make sure the rules are clear. You shall serve me, not I you. And that's what we have to do. We have to be careful to make sure we know who's serving who. Who's being true? Who don't even care anymore? Sorry, a country song just got popped into my head there. <laughs> Only a few of you would catch that, especially up here. See, if that was in Oklahoma, everybody would know. <clears throat> Money isn't evil, but loving it absolutely is. O'Donnell also said, you cannot serve God and money, but you can serve God with money. And that is exactly what we are supposed to do. We're not commanded to never have anything. If we never have anything, then we can never give anything, right? But we are to make sure that our hearts are in the right place, that our eyes are in the right shape, that our money is in the right chains. And when we see those things right, when we get this perspective when we serve God and money serves us and we put our trust into the Lord for all things, then what we get to do is we get to give worry a nice swift kick in the rear, which is what it deserves. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his life span by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yeah, I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
I love that he starts with the word therefore, because that shows us that everything that we've been learning about money is connected to what he wants to teach us about worry. He's like, hey guys, because you are focused on building treasure in heaven, because you see that giving is a good investment, because you serve God and money serves you, you don't need to worry. And look what he says not to worry about. He doesn't jump into the frivolous things. Don't worry about getting your nails done. Don't worry about that morning cup of coffee that you missed. Don't worry about that concert that you wanted to go to. No, he goes right into things that we need. Food, water, clothing. And what is the foundational truth that he points to to prove to us that we don't need to worry? It is God's meticulous love and care over his creation. Look at those have you seen my birds? God's like, have you seen my birds, guys? John Piper said, what we see when we look at the birds is a creature who does not act as though God is only a merciful provider for today, but won't be tomorrow. Birds don't anxiously hoard things for the day of God's demise. They go about their work as though when the sun comes up tomorrow, God will still be God. God isn't going anywhere. He is not changing. He will not fail. He cares for and loves the birds. And guess what? You are more valuable than they. Have any of you ever had a problem that you, you couldn't diagnose? Maybe it was with your body. Maybe it was with your car. Maybe it was with your house. Maybe it was in a relationship and, and you just have this. And it's so awful when you can't diagnose what's causing the problem, right? And even, even if you get a diagnosis that you're like, oh, that's not the diagnosis I wanted to hear. There's still a sense of relief by just getting a diagnosis because you don't have to go on and on and on in confusion. Like going from one doctor to the next, getting this scan and that test, just suffering in confusion but so many Christians suffer in confusion with anxiety, with worry. And, and sometimes we act like it's not even a big deal, which is a problem in itself. O'Donnell also said smoking is no longer an acceptable behavior in, in our society. So we tax cigarettes with a sin tax and outlaw puffing in our pubs. But what about worry? That's still far too acceptable a sin. Oh, I'm such a worrier, people say often as if it's an innocent statement. And it's not. It's a big deal. You don't have to suffer in confusion. God has given us the diagnosis. You might not like the diagnosis, but he tells us exactly what the problem is. Worry is a lack of faith. It's that simple. That's what it is. When we worry, our faith levels are too low. We're faith deficient. We need a dose of vitamin F. Now, websites and magazines, they're going to tell you that you need to take medications, you need to cut caffeine, you need to exercise, eat right, meditate, get therapy. Have you guys stopped to think about the fact that we are in a society that takes more medication and gets more therapy than ever before in history, and we are in rapid decline? It is not working. The fruit is showing itself. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a need for medication for 
certain things. I'm not saying that counseling can never help, but a good counselor, if you're seeing somebody and you're talking to them about your anxiety, about your worry, a good counselor is going to give you a proper diagnosis and they're going to say, you lack faith. And what you need to do is remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember what he has promised to do. And even if you run out of those things that you think you, those things that you truly do need to keep living, food, water, clothing, even if you run out of all of those things, then what is going to happen to you? Piper also said the bottom line defense against anxiety is this, in Christ you are immortal and to die is gain. That's why Jesus says in Luke 12, 14, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. In other words, there is something far worse than death. And it can never happen to you in Christ. So don't be anxious. Anxiety isn't going to help us one bit. We see from both the example of the birds and the flowers that anxiety is unnecessary. Neither of those examples is meant to teach us that we shouldn't work hard. We know laziness is a sin. We know that Paul taught that those who refuse to work shouldn't eat. And I know it says the birds, they don't sow or reap. The flowers don't labor or spin thread. But Jesus is not advocating for an approach to life where we just sit back and wait for God to miraculously fill our stomachs. Like birds actually, they work. Birds work really hard, but they don't worry. They don't store up and hoard things. You see, working hard enables us to give hard, which is what Acts 20.35 teaches us. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Anxiety is never needed. There's never been a situation in life when somebody looked back and was like, well, what that needed was more anxiety. You know, well, my only regret is that I didn't worry more. Nobody's ever done that. Concern is necessary in life, but not worry. God shows his concern for creation. That's why he feeds the birds. That's why he clothes the flowers. But God is never worried. He's never, like, like, gripped by fear that one day... Uh, Maybe I'll sleep in late and I'll forget to make the sunrise. Or maybe I'll fall ill and I'll miss something. And my my whole plan is just going to fall apart. God doesn't worry. It's not necessary. And in verse 27, we find that it's not productive. Verse 27 said, can any, any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Anxiety is unproductive. You see, some things can be productive yet unnecessary. You can score a touchdown at the end of the game that doesn't change who wins or loses the game. Uh, that, that was not a necessary touchdown, but it was productive. It produced points. It produced some stats for some people. There's all kinds of things in life that you can do that aren't necessary, but they can be productive. Anxiety is not one of those. Have any of you ever gone to the doctor and been told that you need more anxiety? Anybody? No? Joe, you're getting a little pudgy. You're going to need about 20% more anxiety, I think. Jill, your cholesterol's getting a little high. You know you need to be anxious at least three hours a week. That's not happened. It's not going to happen. 
Worry just doesn't do anything. It doesn't, not anything good. It doesn't produce anything at all. This is what I've been trying to drill into my kids about whining. How many times have I told them like, your whining is not going to help you. It's, it's not going to get you what you want. In fact, if you keep it up, it's going to get you the opposite of what you want. Now for some kids, whining, it works, but it shouldn't. But that's what anxiety does for us. It never produces positive results, but it absolutely produces a lot of negative ones. You see, excessive worry can release hormones that produce difficulty swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches, inability to concentrate, irritability, muscle aches and tension, nausea, nervous energy, rapid breathing, sweating, trembling, and twitching. And that's not even the bad stuff. It can also release hormones that cause suppression of the immune system, digestive disorders, short-term memory loss, premature coronary artery disease, and heart attacks. That's what worry has to offer. That is, that is its dating profile right there. It cannot add one moment to your life, but it can definitely take some away. If you bring in worry for an interview, he can talk all day about his weaknesses. You ask about his strengths, and he's just going to give you a blank stare because he doesn't have anything to say. Make your pros and cons list, all right? It's like making a pros and cons list of moving to California. That was a joke. It's just a list of cons. I'm just kidding. Some of you, maybe you've got family in California. You might be able to find a good reason to move to California, but you're never going to find a good reason to be anxious. It's unnecessary. It's unproductive. And then we find the last point in the final few verses. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Anxiety is unchristian. That's highlighted in verse 32. Jesus says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. And he's using Gentiles in that context as a way to say unbelievers. Anxiety is atheistic. It's what you do when you don't believe that there is a God who feeds the birds and clothes the flowers. It's how you feel when you don't know what's going to happen to you if you died today. It's how you respond when you don't have any concept of building heavenly treasures. Anxiety, worry is completely logical for everyone who does not know Christ. And it is completely illogical for everyone who does. It does not make sense for us. And what happens when we worry is that we, we misplace all of our priorities, right? We waste time, we act irrationally, or we freeze up in fear and don't act at all. We just can't seek first God's kingdom while we're worrying because the two are antithetical. And the reality is that all those things that we worry about, God can handle. Like, I know we worry about more than just money and material things. We worry about people. We worry about their salvations. We worry about wars, all kinds of other things. But God can handle all of it. He can carry it. And we should be concerned. We can still be concerned. Understand that. We should be concerned. God, what concern does, concern leads to appropriate and rational action. 
That's what concern does. So if my child runs out into the street, concern is going to get me immediately running and yelling, trying to get them out of harm's way. But worry is going to have me frozen up in fear and not acting. You want, you want to go into battle with people who are appropriately concerned. I don't want to storm the beaches of Normandy with somebody who acts like there's no danger and just walks out on the beach nonchalantly. I also don't want to storm the beach with somebody who's curled up into a ball sucking air out of a bag. I want somebody who is appropriately concerned and will act rationally. Nothing in scripture teaches us to stop caring, to stop acting. It's exactly the opposite. If we seek first God's kingdom, that's going to lead us into more care and more action than it should ever lead any atheist into. But it should also keep us away from worry. And Christ doesn't teach that we shouldn't worry because there's no trouble coming either. Notice what he said. It's the opposite. He's like, don't, he wasn't like, don't worry about tomorrow. It's not going to have any trouble. No, don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough trouble. Today has enough trouble of its own. So it just don't worry about tomorrow. You just need to focus on today. That's why I love Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end for his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's grace is new every single morning. So don't try to use tomorrow's grace today. You're going to need it tomorrow. There will be trouble. Worrying's not going to help. God's grace is su sufficient. His promises are true. Last week we studied prayer. We studied the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And we came that one part that said, give us today our daily bread. And I mentioned that the original language worded it more like, give us today tomorrow's bread. And it's like these verses in Lamentations, this truth that his mercy is new tomorrow. It's like that's the, the bread that we get today that, that secures our tomorrow. He's like, hold on to this. You, you need to hold this. You're going to need it tomorrow. You need to know that my mercy, my grace, my compassion, it's new when you wake up in the morning. John MacArthur told a story that I wanted to share with you. As World War II was coming to a close, the Allied armies gathered many of the hungry orphans that were left as a result of the war. They were placed in camps and they were well fed. Despite excellent care, they found that these children couldn't sleep. They seemed nervous and afraid, and they, they would stay awake all night with insomnia, staring at the ceiling. Finally, somebody came in to try to figure out what was going on. They came up with a solution. Every night before the children were put in bed, they were given a little piece of bread to hold in their hand, and they went to sleep clutching this little piece of bread. The point was they had lived so long existing without food and hunger that they couldn't sleep for fear that they wouldn't be able to eat the next day. But once they put a little piece of bread in their hand and they knew the next day was secure, they could sleep. It's as if when God gives us the promise, fear not little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He puts a little piece of bread in our hands and he says, go to sleep. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? Hebrews 13 Five says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. Rest in the arms of Christ. 
Worry, it's a lack of faith. It's unnecessary, it's unproductive, it's unchristian. Seek first the kingdom of God. Invest in heavenly treasures. Do you realize what God has offered you? He said, here is an account. I've got an account with your name on it. You can pour as much into it as you want to. And I have guaranteed that it is going to pay dividends for all eternity. He's made us an offer that we should not refuse. Pour into that account. And the beautiful thing is that in God's economy, there's never going to be a crash. There's never going to be a recession. It's always going up. So hold on to that. Pour into that account. Cling to these truths, the promises that God has given us. Hold them in your hands and rest. What do you have to worry about?